Welcome to another episode of Sim Sundays. This is episode 37, and, well, I just checked the the length of time that Mr. Tom over here was speaking to our guest <laughs> this time, and it's a very long one. So, in this one, we're actually going to split it up into two parts. So, this is 37.1. Tom, this is a long one. How did you, how did you make it so long? What happened? This was... This was honestly a fantastic podcast. Like this is this is a really really interesting one. This is this has got a bit of everything. This is a bit of everything that I ever wanted the podcast to be because we really went deep into like Neville's story, like okay. how he got to be the CEO of Vasaro, like how he went from like zero to providing like hundreds and hundreds of very bespoke sim rigs to the F1 arcade, like the the partnership with Dbox and how they integrate motion, like how he went from. Uh, a world of software into hardware. So anyway, we got really, That's really amazing. into the chat and uh, I was just, I just didn't want it to end. And I sat there and I had two trains to London that were booked. I missed the first <laughs> one and I was like, well, I'm going to keep going because this is so good. And then I missed the second one and I was like, oh, this, I, I can't, I, I don't want to cut this short because it was such an interesting chat. So I kind of, as I was sat there, I was like, okay, this is going to be a two-part. Let's settle into this. This is really, really interesting. So the first episode that we're going to hear um is really about neville and his background and i think chris you're going to really enjoy this one because obviously sadly you weren't at the episode and and you haven't listened to it yet um but you're going to really enjoy it this guy is like a pioneer like a genuine pioneer like he's he's like in a book about like most influential people to That's develop amazing. the internet which which is, <laughs> which is which is very cool and then we talk about like his like his um his methodology and his ethos around design and development and it's it's fascinating he's such an interesting person very cool well i hope you all enjoy this conversation as much as tom did while he got to speak to neville and yeah we'll see you on the other side neville hi welcome to the sim sundays podcast how you doing i'm great thanks thanks for having me no anytime anytime we've um we've spoken before a couple of times we met at the the expo uh last year just gone and you showed us around the Vasara rigs you had and the uh, the new v rigs and we'll get onto those um but i do remember i do remember us having a little chat just outside your your enormous booth at the expo um and you said that you you get quite nervous when you do interviews and you said you're not too you said you weren't too comfortable on camera and, and doing interviews How, why, why do you think that is uh i wouldn't say i get nervous it's um i used i think i used to i used to get nervous mm. and when i spoke to you at sim expo it had been a couple of years because we had the pandemic so i was just a bit out of touch with it but um i mean i start i did my first interview at the age of 21 so what 24 years ago now um not really interview i did my first public appearance on a stage in front of about four and a half thousand people oh my god yeah at the age of 21 um so that was in my web design days i was a sort of a quite a well-known flash web designer and i'd been invited to speak at computer arts london as a guest speaker and uh yeah i'd, I'd only started my own business sort of three months earlier and the next thing i was on stage talking about you know the industry and and it was a yeah it was a very very nervous experience and um yeah, I kind of avoided those kind of public speakings for for a while, and then you know many years later I started Vasaro and the um, I, I had to do public you know public 
uh, speakings, especially at events. And mm. uh, you know, as soon as people knew I was there, they wanted to speak to me. Uh, sometimes I speak to them. Sometimes I just avoid them because <laughs> it was stressful enough at an event, let, let alone being on camera. Uh, but I've kind of got used to it over the years. And um, you know, event after event, I got quite comfortable with it. And um, sometimes I actually quite enjoy it. So, but yeah, when I spoke to you last, it had been a, a long, a long gap of at least two years of you know, hiding in our holes at, mm. you know, after the with the pandemic, and uh, now you know by the end of the expo i was actually having quite a lot of fun i did an interview with dbox and um yeah yeah i quite enjoyed it so i'm quite excited to be here and happy to have a good uh, a good chat with you about whatever's whatever's coming <laughs> which i have no <laughs> which i have no idea because i have no questions in advance or you made, so yeah you made that sound very ominous <laughs> <laughs> well you know this is completely unprepared which is actually how i prefer it i'd rather I don't, I don't like preparing for interviews. I, I, um, I actually was on uh, te- uh, Discovery Channel once. Tech Toys 360 came and did a, you know, expose or whatever you like on our company, and they sent me a set of preset questions the, the night before oh, no. the, uh, you know, we were going live on TV. And you must have felt I, like you had to revise them. Yeah, and I did. I kind of prepared these answers, and when I started to, you know, they sat me down, full film crew, and. I started to try and re- respond to the answers and it just wasn't working. And so the, the crew said, look, just, you know, just respond naturally off the cuff. So I was like, okay, cool. And that's all I needed to do. And it was easy after that because ultimately if they're asking me questions about my business and, you know, and aspects of the industry, if I know the answer, then I don't have to have it prepared and written down because then I'm, then that's an acting role and I'm yeah. definitely no actor no. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, and I'm no good at remembering lines. So it's uh yeah, I'd rather just be off the cuff and yeah, a hundred percent. And I feel like um, if you get asked for for interviews or comments about Vasaro or sim racing or in this case, like yourself, you, you kind of know what you're talking about by default, right? So there's no like nerves about oh, if they can ask me something I don't know the uh, the answer to. Because if if somebody asks you a question in an interview that you didn't know the answer to, it's probably a pretty poor question. Yeah, I mean. It's not an sometimes, for a job. Yeah, sometimes people ask, so they, they're like, okay, well, you're in the sim industry, so you must know everything about the sim industry, uh, or you must know everything about Formula One and you know mm. every type of race series. So when someone asks me a question about the industries that I'm in, I'm not going to know every answer. Um, so, But like you said, if it's a question about me or my business uh, or things that I clearly specialize in, then I should have a... <laughs> a decent enough response uh, well i'll try my i'll try my best for you Tom. well it's just as well because i think that's where i want to start because uh you said something there which i thought was particularly interesting which you said you were a, a well-known flash designer now mm. i'm not a technical guy but i do remember at school like people playing with flash i remember when flash came out and it was in all the like computer rooms which i guess nowadays people would just call rooms i'm, I'm imagining that <laughs> yeah. like pretty much every room in a school now has computers in yeah. it but i remember people like designing all these like videos that you could do on flash or like 3d animations so how did you get into that so i i studied i mean well, i actually studied i did three different degrees at university i kept changing you know the old story of you you go to university at 17 years old you do you mm. really know what you want I eventually found the course and I was studying um, 
software systems for the arts and media. So we did like 3D animation, 3D modeling, music production, web. If it barely existed back then, it was text and images, like really basic. And I specialize in 3D and I wanted to become a 3D game designer uh, and eventually work in film special effects. That was kind of my my path. That's where I wanted to go. And I'd I remember I remember the day I'd actually gone for a job interview for a games company and it was going to be developing a an Olympics game. So oh, you know like Olympic yeah, yeah. sport game. And uh, so this would be 20, 23 years ago. And I didn't get the job and I was sat at home a little bit miserable and surfing the web and this website came up that had animation and sound and um and I was like whoa what the hell is this this is this is not what I mean this might sound a bit crazy to some of your sort of younger listeners but yeah the web was text and and pictures and it loaded a a painful (laughs) pace and then all of a sudden there was this like amazing page I was like I've got to know how to do this this is incredible and back then you didn't really have you know, YouTube didn't exist. There was no real online resources to kind of learn this stuff. And I, um, and I just sort of painfully sort of struggled with trying to learn how to do it. And that was kind of, that was it. I was obsessed with this new technology that could create these amazing mixed, you know, mixed media mediums and, um, started, yeah, started developing websites. And before I knew it, I was running my own business straight out of university and, building a website built the website for guinness world records and that's very kind of built, cool yeah we built a website that kind of had never been done before we managed to get the entire guinness world records catalog into a website that had a sub 10 second loading time on 56k modems which <laughs> kind of kind of it was a real challenge and um and it got me a lot of notoriety and you know in magazines and stuff like that and it just kind of went from there i became mm. very well known as a as a flash designer um they used to call me one of the pioneers of flash so um (laughs) which i was in a book recently which was quite cool that actually came out it was the the sort of history and foundation of web design and it was all the people that um were sort of key to making the web what it is today so it was quite interesting to sort of have this book come out sort of recently of a old life of mine it it Mm. was a nice way to kind of to recognize that old that old life and those old achievements yeah. from a long time ago because Vasaro has kind of consumed my life um, almost like a new version of me in the past 11 years. So, yeah, it was a, an amazing time. We were we were really kind of pioneers of what we were doing and really felt like we were creating something new. I guess like, you know, people who are the pioneers of AI recently and, yeah. you know, the people who were pioneers of crypto those guys in those early days that were like well we're onto something exciting here and that's kind of where we were back in the day it was a it was a good time um and part of the story that kind of led to Vasaro in many ways so yeah I was I was just thinking that it's interesting because it, it does feel like back then so this was in the year 2000 Flash would have been at the very forefront of of development so you would have been doing things that people literally hadn't done before so you'd have been yeah. trialing new new techniques and yeah. i kind of feel like when you look at vasaro and you look at vrig and you look at valkyrie and we'll get onto all three of those <laughs> it definitely feels like you're starting from a pretty like a blank piece of paper each time that yeah. is, is that kind of what excites you when you get out of bed and is it is it 
the ability to to create new absolutely absolutely and that's what i loved about um so we didn't just do websites in my my last company was called theory seven um we did websites 3d modeling animation and sort of motion graphics and sort of merging all that together and also having that online and each time you did a new project it was like in a way like starting a little mini business so it was always something new you were creating a new product and that definitely excited me which is why i did it for for a long time and with Vasaro, it's um you know you're, you're creating when you're creating new products there's always something new there is no it's hard to get bored because if you mm. were bored if you were bored one day actually that's a great opportunity because in that moment of boredom is is when everything else has cleared out and you're ready to fill that bored space with a with an idea um, and a concept and which can lead to a, a design and a new product uh, or a new you know, direction for the company so so yeah. yeah i mean definitely when i create new things it's it's a blank sheet but it's definitely not starting with an empty pot so to speak because I, I every time i start a new idea a new concept a new business it's taking this bucket that i've got filled with ideas um skills failures successes and i take all of those pieces and i put them on the sheet of paper so i'm always mm. coming to the table with a with an arsenal really not never an empty never an empty pot so to speak yeah so it's like the, the application of your previous experiences but in uh, you know applying that in a novel way in a new way to a new concept or in Vasaro's case presumably to a new client with bespoke unique needs right so you know it, it looks like your your product line is very much designed to be bespoke depending on a client's wishes and you know, if you take f1 arcade for example like that that must have been like one of the most exciting briefs to come across your desk to be like, okay, how do we, how do we build new into this? How do we not make it exactly what they were expecting in their heads? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, F1 Arcade was really a, um, we've done it. We've done a lot of things that were really pushing the boundaries hard for us um, because the expectations have just been beyond mm. anything we, we've done before. Um, we're not, we're not just building a simulator that you would put in your average sim center we've built a simulator that's got to handle the abuse of thousands and thousands of people yeah, yeah. You know, it's a seven day week operation you know running 12 hours plus a day um something that can handle uh it's it's a it's an environment that's quite brutal it's mm. mass it's mass market the rigs are uh unmanaged so which is which is not really something you see. So we've basically built something that performs like an arcade machine, but with an arcade machine, they tend to they make them very dumbed down, mm -hmm. really simple wheel, really simple controls. Like everything is dumbed down because it's got to be able to survive abuse. We've we've gone right. Well, we're going to take a professional training simulator and we're going to make it work in an arcade environment with um, yeah with no. You don't have anyone to get you in and out of the simulator. It's kind of free play, like a um, when I say free play, you you book your session. Yeah. You, you know, yeah but yeah. it's you don't have someone to help you in and out. It's not a managed experience. So that was a massive challenge, being able to handle being in an environment with drink and food, mm. um, and then be able to develop a product that can then go global and be fully certified. It's a fully, you know, it's got full certification. We're currently expanding to America, where we'll be. Um, getting a ul certification which is 
probably the most stringent, hardest um, form of testing possible. We're sending a simulator to a laboratory in California where the um, will undergo up to two months of testing in multiple laboratories. So, <laughs> so we'll have those, those, those testers have got an incredible job. Imagine imagine being yeah. one of these testers and you just get this free, <laughs> like, right, we've got this racing simulator. We just want you to to use it for the next two months and see if it, I'm sure there's more to it than that. You know, yeah, bit, yeah. But, but like what a great thing to get to test. I mean, there's, there was talk. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was there was talk at one point of um, things being set on fire as part of a test. Luckily, it seems like that's not going to have to happen. But well, yeah, when seems we a bit had harsh. yeah, when we <laughs> we had that um, for the first time, we kind of yeah, it was a bit like what the hell. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's pretty extreme, and the the level of detail is everything down to the the, the connector on the end of a cable the the material of the cable the the type of plastic that's used in the you know in the parts that we're making everything has to be fully certified like ul certified uh, on the on the machine in order to gain a full certification of the entire product which is something that you know a lot of products don't have in this kind of space so yeah it's so it feels like you've got an incredibly detailed knowledge of kind of hardware and manufacturing and compliance. And you've, and you kind of had to develop this with Versaro, but I want to kind of go back a little bit because, um, you worked at blue marble and then it was theory seven, um, which are obviously digital software development, um, animation, et cetera. Um, and that, and that seemed to be your, well, you said yourself that you were kind of pivotal in, in developing new processes for, for web development and the internet and whatnot. So given how kind of deeply integrated into that kind of software world you were, why did you make this huge leap from software to hardware? Yep. So, yeah, so exactly. I mean, there was a point where I was developing my own flash games. Um, so coding in action script and you know i'd built a, a really cool game that with a jet fighter and you'd fire rockets and the rockets would actually lock on to targets and you know things That's like cool. that really really good really good fun um like a top-down shooter and obviously we were developing pretty complex um, we built forums in flash and chat you know chat bots and all sorts of pretty complex stuff so yes yeah, software and software development is something that i'd done for a long time um i've always i was always much more of a designer that's what really excited me like more visual and design um but development is uh, was was a part of what i did and i had a team you know i had a team of developers as well that worked with me but yeah after like 11 years of that company i started to realize that everything i did kind of disappeared onto a hard drive somewhere mm. and it's a little bit like the you know how people talk about we all take pictures on our phones these days and it never really exists it just kind of disappears yeah. onto your phone you very and, look at them yeah and everyone's like started talking these days about oh we should print our pictures off and go back to those old days where you you the first thing you did when you got back from holiday was you took mm. your camera um, took your rolls to the to the lab and you know boots or something and they would process your film and give you a, a packet of pictures and you'd sift through your pictures, something that people, you know, some people won't even know what I'm talking about. Um, and people now are talking about wanting to print stuff off again. And this is what was kind of happening with me. Like 
we had these project projects they existed on a the computer they went live on a computer generally um you know big campaigns we did a lot of projects for Hewlett Packard did about 25 projects over the years um and you know they have these big campaigns and then they'd sort of disappear mm. um and i got to the point where i was like two, two things happened that led to it one was i wanted to move the, to the next step up the ladder all my clients built things they built products and they sold to consumers you know hewlett-packard ford microsoft like these were some of my clients and that was the next natural step up the ladder was to move to creating products for consumers and the next thing I wanted to do was I had this weird desire to build something that would want would rust and would some someday would just live forever in a you know in the future in a hundred years from now one of our products would still be there kind of rusting away physically as a physical thing where did that come <laughs> from that, 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 that something must have triggered that, that why why and, why did you want that to be the case it, it was like I said it was that thing of everything just existing on hard drives mm. and being you know you, you don't even it, you can't even see it you can't even look back on it without loading up a computer and sort of looking at it on your computer and there was this strange thing of I, I wanted to take you know and I, and I did three and we built things in 3d we 3d model things we created loads of cars and all sorts of different you know built 3d computers and for Hewlett Packard and servers and um, I wanted to take those designs and pull them out of the screen and have them in my room and be able to walk around it and touch it and feel it you know we've in 3d you apply textures um you apply a texture to something or a paint finish you set up lights and cameras and maybe my you know i did a lot of photography over the years and maybe that also made me want to do things for real i wanted to take my design and pull it out of the computer and and have it as a physical object that i could light Mm. i could light with real lights and film and photograph with a camera and we could choose the texture for real and that would be a paint finished and it would have a certain feel to it um so do things and, feel more real to you if they are physical then so if you if you build they definitely a, do a, now yeah. Right, yeah 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 after years of you know my i guess this also goes back to this strain this there was this point at, at university where i'd um I was looking for a new course at university and I found this course called model design. It was a really cool course that was, it was like film special effects model making. Um, so you would build like big spaceships that would go on, you know, for big Hollywood budget films. Um, we went to the set of lost in space, for example, and that it was, I had a kind of a pivotal moment on the set of lost in space and, um, we were walking around visiting all the the model designers and there was these model designers in the corner of this room building this giant space model that was going to be part of part of a you know panning shot and they were in the corner of this room gluing and sticking stuff together and you know I thought, this that's really cool it's really cool okay and then they took us on the tour they took us to the cgi department which was quite a new thing at the time mm. And it was indoors and they had their music playing. They had a pile of CDs and they were eating a nice chocolate muffin. And <laughs> they were like sitting on their comfy chairs. They weren't in the corner of a warehouse mm. and, you know, they had their fancy computers. And I saw what they were doing and they were doing exactly the same thing as the model makers, but they were doing the, the CGI shots of the spaceship. Yeah. So, you know, 
back then a lot of it was you know you'd have some 3d model you'd have some models and some cgi and they would kind of mix it and i just thought that's the future like building on a computer that's where it's going to go and i pivoted Mm. the next year to a new course that had 3d modeling and animation as part of that course so i actually started off very much in the physical world i did a lot of design i did design technology a level and sort of specialize in building physical objects and my university degree um you know my middle degree was very based around physical objects and building physical uh, models and then i pivoted into the digital space uh, which now nothing exists other than you know what's behind your screen and uh yeah that was that was the end of my sort of my path of physical because i was i was really getting on board with what the future was and the future was it was digital in that realm now obviously when you come to a simulator it can't exist virtually uh, unless you're you know just using a pure vr headset and, a, yeah. and some controllers but that's not a that's not a racing experience it's a, it has to be a physical experience and this you know sort of discovering you know my my reasons for starting Vasaro is a, is a whole nother sort of set of parameters, but you know part of the the desire to actually start a company like that and to to, to build something completely um, physical was very much because of that that mm. journey where I started off in a physical space, I went digital, and I I definitely wanted to to move into a, a physical space again in terms of building real products. Do you think there's an element here of there's more art involved in the physical products than there are in the computer generated products. Like I was having a conversation. Um, in fact, it wasn't a conversation. I was basically schooled. So I've, I've started a lunchtime project where um, I'm doing the McLaren F1 Lego set. And I was <laughs> building this thing and I was like, oh, this is so beautiful. It's like millimeter perfect. Every single like little piece is perfectly designed to fit together. And it's such a satisfying experience. And I said to, um, to Nicole and Camille, uh, in the office, I was like, imagine being the guys that designed this. Like, you can just tell when you're when you're putting this together. This has been put together with so much passion. Like, these are guys who absolutely love what they do every day, and they turn around and were like, Tom, it's it's all done by computer. Like, there's there's no one like in a lab coat that's, that's like studying old sketches of Formula One. Put like, it's ninety percent of it is done on a computer. And I thought, ah, has that kind of like ruined the illusion for me a little bit that I'm essentially just kind of almost deconstructing a computerized process here like it's got like Uh, like in reverse no i don't think so like yes it might be 90 percent design on computer but every element of that design results in a physical experience Mm. you know when you're putting lego together it's it's a physical tactile experience where you can you know you can feel every click and the way it goes together and the texture of the of the plastic you can hold it and move around it and see it you know, with the, the the vision that we have, which is far superior than what we can see on a computer screen or a, or a VR experience. Um, so, yeah, the design may be on a computer, but it's it's a completely physical design that you're building, unless that design never makes it off the computer and it's a failed a failed product, which you know which happens. Um, but do you think there's more art in the physical items than there are? in the kind of the process of it being built on the computer and I, I, the reason Absolutely. i'm asking this is because i'm yeah. wondering if this is why perhaps you've gone back to hardware over software 
it feels like you had your your love of this space has come from the art so that you know the, the animation there's a bit of art there but you spoke really fondly of the the guys in the corner of the factory building yeah. the set is there just yeah. a bit more love for that side of art yeah i think absolutely it's 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 a greater form of art if you if you build on a computer and i've done everything from 2d animation and and you know graphics in photoshop to 3d which is this kind of the next the next step up you know doing 3d modeling and animation where something you know you can see it in a 3d form and make it move and um and taking the next the next step up from that is a 3d object that now exists in the physical world that you've got to take through various stages of you know manufacturing to create it you know paint it and give it a finish and a feel and make it a you know a product that you can interact with and has a purpose Mm. so it's a it's a it's a sort of an extreme form of art like building a product really is one of the hardest things building a product that is functional and serves a purpose and looks great is i would say that the the highest form of art possible um and i think anyone would you know you could i think you know an iphone will be put in a gallery quite happily mm. and people would say that was a piece of art that millions of people got to enjoy um, and the same with you know, any any successful product and it's i suppose a... yeah I, I suppose the thing with the simulator as well is that it's not just a physical object which you can hold and you're saying that you can look at it from different angles and you feel the textures you're literally inside it like you're in like yeah. i'm sat in this rig now and you know you can feel it if i was mm-hmm. driving then like nearly every part of your body is interacting with the simulator in some way whether it's your hands on the wheel or it's your feet on the pedals or sitting in the seat and then looking at the the way that the screen wraps around like there's so much to think about. There's so much, so much ergonomics that are involved uh, in in designing a sim. But I want to I want to know the 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 like the practicalities right of this. So you've gone from software to hardware. You've gone from Theory Seven to Vasaro. Now your LinkedIn profile would claim that you finished Theory Seven in December 2011 and you started Vasaro the same month 2011. Now. Yep what was what was the case here like how did this actually happen like at, at what point did you make the plunge i'm always really interested in these founder stories like was it very much the case that you were like right i'm going to start vasaro it's going to be a 10-year project i'm going to start with this and then we're going to go to this and then the, the or <laughs> like was it an experiment just like tell me how it happened i wish i was that or, that organized <laughs> future planning <laughs> so vasaro um obviously we had the recession and that was, you know, really hard hitting on on everybody. I kind of felt like I'd got away with it at first. We were sort of a year into the recession and we were still super busy. Um, but eventually, like everybody, it kind of caught up with us and our, our work reduced. You know, we were in a position with Theory 7 that we got to choose all these really cool, fun projects. It was the extra campaign that the company would do. It wasn't the standard websites. Mm. We, we kind of avoided that. We didn't do e-commerce sites and stuff we did the really cool campaigns and we just come off the back of doing a project for ford it was actually microsoft and ford and we basically microsoft built the website and we built so they built like the back end part and then we built ford city so we 3d modeled this entire city it had like 200 buildings in it we modeled from scratch 3,000 trees and all these different oh, wow. areas we filmed fashion models on green screen and had them kind of walking in this 3d city and you could fly around the city and go to different areas and it would 
you know, there was a sort of 3D interactive website. Really, really amazing project. I had sounds like a lot of fun. It was it was it was epic. Um, we had our own render farm in house. We were 3D rendering all the animation. I had about 20 people working for me at the time, mainly remotely. We were kind of a primarily remote networking company, but I had a core team as well. And this project was going on. It was like super fun. We had loads of other projects lined up coca-cola happiness factory pc world and all these projects were kind of and then the news hit that the the um lehman brothers i think was the bank mm. lehman brothers went uh went down and then all of a sudden the whole the whole the, the yeah, whole yeah. the whole stack of cards just came <laughs> tumbling Yikes. down yeah, like it yeah. really it really started to you know it started to hit the fan so to speak and um you know, things started to change and, but what it, it was an amazing moment really. And I really, although the recession was awful for a lot of people and it affected us seriously, but it, what it did do was it gave me time to kind of look up from my computer because the work had kind of, you know, plateaued off with the, with the mm. recession. A lot of these super fun projects were getting pulled The you know, big brands were just sticking to their standard websites yeah. and holding off on on the fun sort of the extra extras. campaigns yeah. we were really big into digital magazines as well so we were doing loads of digital online magazines at the time we did like honda dream online magazine like every month as an example and for a lot of companies they were great for sort of eco um credentials to be having a digital online magazine yeah. and moving in that direction but all of a sudden now you've got the recession so being eco is like forget that we've got a yeah. Yeah, batten yeah. down the hashes so the online digital magazines were definitely sort of put on hold for for quite a long time uh, but it gave me a, a great opportunity which was to have headspace and headspace is a really powerful thing because you can do great things with when you've got um when you've got space in your head the, the last time i probably had that was as a as a kid you know when you're sitting on the couch looking out at your back garden bored out of your skull and Boredom is a really powerful, powerful thing because it's in boredom that you can be creative. And um, I think being bored is a really important thing to try and if you can get boring, bored moments in your life, um, that's that's where things can happen. It's hard for it to happen when you're super busy with whatever it is you're doing. Um, So it gave me this opportunity to look up from my computer and look at what was going on and and to put my mind into a receiving position where I was, I was able to receive ideas and able to look at other ideas other than the sort of space I was in. Um, and it was actually a, it was a, a guy who'd worked for me, a 3d modeler, very talented. And after he'd sort of gone back to England, he was, he based himself here for a project. He sent me this little video of a kind of a, a rig that he's mock, he'd mocked up like a 3d animation of this rig and it was very boxy looking kind of how how rigs ended up looking 10 years later with everyone doing the um, aluminium profile yeah. design he'd kind of done that you know long so yeah so this 3d model has shown me this you know, 3d animation he'd done of, of this rig i think it was like rock steady rigs or something and um and i just looked at it and in that moment because my mind was kind of open and free I looked at it and I thought I could do I could do better than that, and that's this sort of weird entrepreneur mm. personality mm. that I and many other sort of entrepreneurs have. Is you look at things and you think 
I could do better than that. Or, or you have a novel ideas, you know, there's two sort of pathways. One is you see existing ideas or industries and you think, how could I improve that or do it, do better? Or you, you know, very much like Steve Jobs, you know, he didn't invent the, um, the phone, but he, he did it better. And, um, you know, I, so I had that moment of, I could do better than that. And it, it kind of, in that one moment, that was it. It kind of started from there. I was, there was a lot of things that made my mind in that moment, you know, dive into that. And that was, you know, I was really into cars, performance cars, um, sort of casual sort of racing. And I was never a professional racing driver, but I was obsessed with gaming and gadgets and computers and building computers and all of these, all of these things, but they were all very much my, in my personal domain. And so all of a sudden there was this opportunity to kind of take all of those personal things, combine them with what I'd been doing the past 11 plus years with building things, you know, 3d modeling and um, design and programming, mm. etc., And all of a sudden be able to combine these, these two things, my sort of personal um, loves with all of my, professional industry experience um not in the sim world at that point yeah and sort of dive head deep into this um into this new world of creating a, a physical product so i i really have thought over the years i'd like to sort of track that guy down and sort of thank him for sort of giving me that little spark moment um, that little competitive yeah, nudge i think yeah like i mean i don't i don't think anything ever ever came of it on on his end but I think maybe I would have, maybe I would have got there another way. Maybe I would have seen a, a simulator or, or come across one, and the idea to go in would have happened at, mm. a month later, a year later. I don't know, but that's that was the the moment that it that it really happened, um, and from there it was a, a case of you know starting to design the product. I had to learn about manufacturing, and uh, although I'd done part of one of my degrees was manufacturing technology it wasn't it wasn't enough to to do what was really needed to actually build a product there was a there was a huge amount to learn um i did have a partner back in the early days for about six to seven months who was a cad designer which which helped accelerate that initial period and um yeah it's kind of the rest was history really from then on um, I just sort of went headfirst into it and put everything, everything on the line, and started started for sorrow. Um, there's obviously the... a lot more to it. But... Yeah, of course. Um, and what was the, what was the thesis? Like, what what were you going for? Because you'd seen what sounds to me like an aluminium profile rig, which obviously you've got a lot of, of companies doing that sort of thing. Um, and it's interesting, Ellie. You said that. You know, Steve Jobs didn't invent the phone; he just improved on it. But it's it, when you look at the Vasaro um, range, it, it's almost it, it's almost the opposite. In that you know, there's the old phrase that a um, hundred years ago, if you'd asked people what they what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse, not a car. It feels like you're almost kind of getting into that realm with what you're building at Vasaro. You you know, you're not going for just a better aluminium profile rig. Like you, you're building things with a completely fresh perspective that, that, that look, your product looks so, so different to anybody else's. What was the thesis behind Vasara right at the beginning? Like what was the, 
what was it that you thought that you could do that people weren't doing at the time? Well, I think the approach I always take is is I never look at what everyone else is doing and try and copy or do an improved copy of that. That's not really what I'm about as a person. Um, we always design, you know, sometimes actually to our detriment because uh, you know, I just think, oh, I wonder if other companies have actually got, have bought every rig on the market and have got them in their, in their um, lab. I'm pretty sure plenty of other companies have bought our rig before without us knowing. But we've yeah. never done that. We've never done that. We don't have any other companies' rigs in our, in our, you know, in our development lab. We've never looked at anyone else's because actually we don't want to be swayed by anyone else and we don't want to mm, let their de- let their design decisions affect uh, affect us and our design do you think, think there's any really... benefits though to looking at your competitors i think if you want to skew your vision mm. that's all that's all it does is i don't want my vision and my design to be all of a sudden merged with someone else's vision design and thinking because it really has nothing to do with with me i mean obviously with with sim racing there's a certain set of things we have to follow it's not just art where you can create whatever piece of art you want like we we've got to have a wheel in a certain position and a set of pedals and it's got to have screen so there's these certain parameters that no matter what you do they're they're gonna follow Mm. a similar a similar you know setup to, to other companies but yeah, I've. If anything, I would avoid looking at, at anyone else as much as possible. Um, in fact, the only reason I tend to follow other companies from our feed is just to make sure they're not launching copies of us, and mm. so we can we can kind of address that. And um, That's yeah, I try and avoid. It's almost like you're looking back over your shoulder at the the competition rather than looking kind of Always. forward at what, and this at what is they're something... doing. And this is something I learned a long time ago. Um, I learned this in the early days of of my web design. So I launched a website, um, it was version six, I remember, and it won a lot of awards and everyone was copying it everywhere. Like there was so many copies of this website that, um, you know, at first it was like, okay, that's that's not great. What can I do? I, I was a small company. I couldn't afford to sort of take these companies to court. It's like, and it's not what I wanted to do. I didn't want to spend my life in in litigation that's not yeah, I wanted yeah. to spend my life designing and creating so I moved straight on to the next design I built a new version of the website um, and actually I decided to sell the source code to that site and this was in a, a time when no you couldn't buy source code to anything you couldn't buy the template websites didn't exist um, web designers you, you know what you built was like it was a closed thing. You couldn't see the code. You can't see inside a flash website. Like you can just look at yeah. HTML code um, and you couldn't buy these things. And nobody, nobody in the world had sold their, the secret before um, until, until I did. So I was the first um, person to essentially put the source code to my site online. Um, I put it up for like $99 and everyone just went crazy. It was like, there was a, there was two camps. One was, you know what are you doing you're giving away our secrets um you can't do this like this is this is you know these are our secrets like we've <laughs> we've worked hard to learn all this stuff and the other camp was like this was amazing you've helped me to to get into this into this in- industry to become a web designer and i'd i'd have 50 to 100 emails a week people sort of thanking me this is great what you're doing um because ultimately it was it was a way of educating people on you know how you build 
professional websites. Um, and I suppose the other thing so, is that that particular website and that particular source code isn't your USP. Your USP is your creativity that leads to being able to come up with unique ideas. So whilst other people are yeah. downloading the source code and making their own version of it, you're onto the next innovative project Ex that they can't exactly. replicate. Exactly. So I was always thinking I'd rather put my energy into the next into the next design um and we'd always be ahead we'd always be ahead of the game so yeah in terms of looking at what the competition is doing really it's we always want to just be looking behind mm. um we're not really looking at them and trying to yeah replicate what they're doing um and also if you look at if if all you do is look at what everyone else is doing you end up with a whole bunch of rigs in the market that all look the same and that's basically what's happened lately yeah all the markets yeah. are or, whether whether or not there's you know benefits or not to aluminium profile which there are lots of benefits to it or, you know, absolutely no doubt about that um that's not what our customer is looking for that's not you know if we built if we were looking to build a rig that you know specifically wanted to tick the boxes that someone who an aluminium profile rig works for then we could build that and yeah we'd have a, yeah, yeah. we'd have a product in that market but firstly our 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 customers are not looking for that type of product, mm. um, which is great because I don't want to design that kind of product. Um, and that, if we did, um, we try. <laughs> I was going to say it, it's that it, it's similar to that uh, that quote. I can't remember who said it, but somebody once. Oh, it was Haruki Murakami, Japanese author, said if if you only read what everybody else reads, you only think what everybody else thinks, and that's exactly yeah. that's kind of what you're saying here about if you only look at all the other rigs, then you'll end up with exactly like an amalgamation of all these rigs like the mean of all the other yeah. rigs on the market and the other interesting thing about aluminium profile especially is it there's kind of like a direct correlation between the rigs now and your source code story before because if you think yeah, about it exactly. aluminium profile is almost like the open source of yep. of rigs because it's Completely. so universal and it's so you know you're just buying these 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 lengths of aluminium profile and then you can there's all these universal adapters and it's open source in the sense that you can go on Etsy and people can people can build you know like handbrake mounts or or mounts for your iPad or for your phone and yep. it's like the ultimate open source yep and exactly and at, and at the time there was a there was a fear that you know websites where you could just buy templates or um, you know, this kind of open source nature would sort of kill the web design company. And it didn't because ultimately there's always a, a someone who needs something that you can't just do with an open source um, WordPress type arrangement yeah. or whatever it is. There's always the demand and need for something that's completely custom and completely bespoke, especially in the higher helicons of, of design and creation. And, you know that's where Vasaro definitely sits. It, 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 you just can't do it with can't do what we do for our mm. clients by taking a sort of an open source architecture of aluminium profile and piecing something together. That's not what our clients are looking for, uh, and you can't you can't do it with that. You could do something, but it it wouldn't yeah. be what our clients, what the type of client that Vasaro mainly services need. Yeah. So, so what was your first product? Tell us about the first product that you ever designed for Vasaro. It was it was the Vasaro iFrame. It's the it's the frame that still now is our core frame and it's changed a lot since then. But the shape is actually 
is the same. I, I guess when I designed that frame, I somehow in that first month of the very of the beginning of that, I managed to really nail the design and the to create the shape that gets the wheel where you need it without you know sort of blocking your entry and at the time the the rigs were all sort of they had pillars between your legs mm, so yeah, things like yeah. the the vision racer um was the probably the most popular rig at the time and it it came between your legs with a pillar so that was one of the the biggest challenges of you know how do you move away from that type of design mm. if you're going to look at well how are these how do these products currently look we've got to do it in a different way and we kind of really nailed it and that's 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 that kind of classic Vasaro look that you see today and that was the first product that we designed was just the bare frame and uh, then we you know sort of it was all just about add-ons and modules and it kind of grew from there and yeah grew into the 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 crazy sort of collection of products that you see today on our website and who was okay so two parts to this question who was your first customer and who had you intended your first customer to be? <laughs> who were you building it for in the first place? Our, our, our market then was the sim racing industry. It was enthusiasts, home customers. It was very much a market that we're, we're not really in so much these days. Um, mm. Some of our customers are, but that's not really our market. We can talk about that a bit more. And I guess V-Rig is where that will <laughs> kind of come in a bit more. But yeah, that was definitely our market and we were sort of fully entrenched there and that's who we were building for. It was building something affordable but premium and you know, and something modular, something that really worked for people, people who already had their own equipment and steering wheels or they maybe they already had a play seat and they wanted to upgrade to a yeah sort of the next the next level up. So yeah, that was definitely our, our kind of market. And then who was your can you remember your first customer? Do you remember where they I came can. from? How, yeah. Yeah. He's still our customer. He's still using the rig. He's quite, he's quite, um, he's quite active in, he's quite active on forums and he's still using the rig, which is quite a testament really. Cause our frame, we, we always gave a 10 year warranty with the frame and he's still using it 10 years later, but he's got a quite unique rig that nobody else has got. We built a, um, we built two prototypes and, they were really expensive, about five times the price of the actual product that we we sold. And we launched the website and we had two sales come in through the website and we didn't even have production running. We had these two, <laughs> two prototypes. And for me, like I wanted the very first customer and the very second customer and third customer to get their product on time. Yeah. And the only way to do that was they were getting these very special prototypes um, and he's actually got a completely polished stainless steel rig that cost a fortune that was then painted because he selected the paint color and it's like super light. It's like a really lightweight version of our rig. It's the only one, only one that exists. And uh, we, and we shipped him that a, a massive loss at, at the time because uh, it, the prototype costs a fortune yeah, compared to the actual sale price. And he, uh, it's like a, gunmetal gray finish he had so there's like one gunmetal gray rig out there that um he's still using 10 years 11 years later um and i think he even had some upgrades to it a little while ago which was always part of the philosophy as well 
was for as much as possible and as long as possible we would allow people to upgrade their their products maybe not the most ruthless business approach because if you look at products today they try and get you to buy a new product every year and Mm. even build in you know what's the big apple saga of them trying to you know reduce the the power and speed of it um because they want you to just buy more product and throw it away now really when i talked about wanting my product to one day rust in a um you know in in a dump really that's that one product because it's last lasted a lifetime and and even when that person's finished with it, it it will still be strong enough to go on to the next person and really will one day be rusting in some post-apocalyptic future <laughs> but but they won't but there won't be there won't be thousands and thousands of them because you've not had to buy a new one every year yeah um, you haven't you haven't bought 10 Vasaros in your lifetime you've bought one and it will work for as so long as how, possible how do you get around then building bespoke unique rigs for your clients but then also having an add-on ecosystem that would work so so if you have 10 clients and they all have very slightly different rigs but then they all decide that they want to buy the handbrake add-on or whatever it happens to be how do you make sure that that works do you have you you must have to have like a kind of core dna that stays the same yeah for each each rig right yeah exactly so the, the the base rig is is core um and it has a set a set you know, set fixings essentially on the mm. frame that we would always just follow those fixings when we design an add-on. So it can always be backwards compatible. Uh, and even if something, you know, if there was something maybe from 10 years ago that it just wouldn't quite work, we can just do a custom plate for that customer to make it work, create a custom in- interface between the two. But generally everything just works um, backwards because we got we kind of got it right 10 years ago um and and even when we've improved the frame so actually the last sort of year we've made the the tubing much thicker just to make it a lot more rigid Mm. but the fixings are still on the same place so you still was that to react to direct drive wheels stronger direct drive wheels coming out and heavier direct drive wheels yeah definitely and also when you know so when we designed the rig in the first place the logitech g27 was that was the king you know it was it was (laughs) it was a crazy thought yeah, it was amazing. And and the rigger was actually designed to fit that perfectly. So actually if you put a if you took our base rig with our original plates and put a Logitech G twenty seven on it with the, the little shifter, it all fits really perfectly. And but back then, you know, the demands were, were, were pretty yeah. low. And it would look very got, out of place now, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And now you've got direct drive, plus also with our sort of pro setups, you we've got like our control manager system on the side and shifters mounted. So you've got a lot of extra weight up the mm. top there. So it's in response to, you know, to building that. Cause we built, it's a bit like a car company. You build a really good chassis and that chassis can kind of follow you through lots of different car designs. And our chassis really has been that. And um, like I said, we've made it a lot stronger over the last couple of years. So as well as having to adapt to like, the success of sim racing in the sense that there's been these huge improvements, companies have invested in these huge improvements in racing, so direct drive wheels, heavier wheels. It sounds like you've also had to react to the customer base that you've attracted. And it feels yep. very much like you've, you've, you've almost pivoted in a sense because your, your market today sounds very different to the market that you were aiming to serve when you first set the company up. So how did that happen? Yep. Was that, was that, a, was it over a long period of, 
getting these inquiries in and realizing there is a market or was there one contract where you were like, ah, okay, I can see now that there is an underserved market here that we fit perfectly into? Yeah, it was it was actually a fir- the first year. Um, do you remember this uh, Sim Raceway, this the game? I don't know. No, Sim Raceway was a yeah, it was a, a a really good game, and you could buy lots of content, lots of cars, and they had loads of they had. I think you paid per car, and they had uh, a racetrack as well. They did the race experience, and they had the game, and mm. I think it was based on our our factor engine, if I remember okay. rightly. And it was year one of Asaro. And we were, you know, we, I started the company with £5,000, basically. We, you know, proper, uh, we didn't have investors or bank loans or anything. It was, you know, literally built from nothing. And, you know, year one was a struggle. Every every sale we made, we took took a little bit of profit and we bought a tool. And the next sale, and the next sale, we bought a welding plant. And the, the next sale, we paid the bills and... <laughs> Tom, this conversation so far has been very interesting. I mean, I remember the days when I used to program in Flash and I was trying to make Flash games and gprime.net was a lot of things where it was Flash animation. So it's really cool to hear how he kind of brought that to the internet almost, if you will. Yeah, it's really, it's so interesting to see like a person's methodology like transcend just a single discipline so in this case like he was doing web development programming and design and animation stuff and he was on the very very cutting edge of that he was doing stuff that literally no one else had done before and he's kind of carried that that approach into the hardware side of things which we're going to hear more of in the next episode in part two in the way that he like designs his products starts from scratch and it's like right how do we do this this from with completely without any influence of anybody else we're going to do something that hasn't been done before and it's really interesting when you go through his story everything he's done has been on a blank piece of paper and it's you know it's very inspiring that's interesting and him being a developer like that really kind of I don't know. In my mind, it it solidifies why he does that, because as a developer, a lot of time you are starting from literally zero mm. and you have to make a product. So it's it's extremely interesting. And uh, yeah, the part two will be next, but that's going to do it for this episode. Part one of Sim Sundays, episode 37.1, as we're saying. So I'd like to thank the episode sponsors. Of course, we still have Track Racer sponsoring us, even though we're not racing. Tom, you get to race on that provided sim rig that they have so if you're looking to upgrade your sim rig and want to get something other than your disc mounted setup or whatever you have at the moment go to trackracer.com and of course we always have grid finder as a primary sponsor i guess you could call them but uh yeah if you're looking for paying ourselves chris i know right (laughs) if you're looking for some sim racing and you want to find that perfect league go to gridfinder.com to check out that or if you're a league owner and you want to use some of our tools and promotion for your league, go to gridfinder.com and add your community to the listing. We appreciate you listening or watching whatever your choice was for this episode. And on to episode two, it is. Thanks. Doodles.